0: Things just got a lot weirder, right? I hope that you are excited as we are about this new worship series simply called Things Just Got a Lot Weirder. You may recall last year we had a similar worship series during the month of June just called Weird in which we looked at some of the most unique and strange and weird scripture passages of the Bible. And of course, the whole goal was to do primarily two things. One is to acknowledge that these are real and true and a part of our scripture And then, of course, acknowledge that there's something redemptive about them. There's something we can glean from this that can be helpful to our faith. And so that's our goal is is to do that. And so um, sometimes when we encounter weird scriptures, we tend to just go right past them and and sort of pretend they don't exist or we don't want to deal with them. Uh, But as a church who values biblical relevance, we want to acknowledge all scripture and we want to recognize how important it is and how foundational it is to our faith, whether we get it or not, or whether it makes sense to us or not, right? So um, I have to make a confession. Outside of the Gospels, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. I love the book of Genesis because by its title, of course, what it means is it's about beginnings. It's about how we came to be. That's what the word Genesis means, right? The Genesis of something means its beginning. And so part of what I love about the book of Genesis is it helps us to know how we are the way we are, why we are the way we are. It's a book full of beginnings. In fact, we refer to those in a very highfalutin way with the the word etiology. Have you ever heard that word for etiology? If you're in the medical profession... You might know that word. Etiology in the medical profession is when we want to find out how something came to be. Like, how did we get chickenpox? Or how did we get AIDS? Or how did we get any number of diseases? We go back to the etiology to determine how it began. In theological realms, an etiology helps us to better understand how we come to be. And we've got all kinds of etiologies in our everyday lives. I I think of one that one of my Old Testament professors used that that you you would never think of, but it's just a fun one. It's just kind of silly, really. Do you like hush puppies, the food? I do. Almost any time I eat seafood or some Cajun food, and clearly if I go all out and I'm eating fried food, I'm going to eat some hush puppies, right? I love them. And the spicier, the better. But you you know how they got their name? This is an etiology, the way in which they got their name. Now, there's probably four or five or six different etiologies about how hush puppies got their name. But the one I love to reside with is, goes back to the Civil War when fried bread was just real common, right? We would just drop some cornbread or corn droppings into the fryer and just make it. And during the Civil War, the story goes that uh, there was a, a body of Confederate soldiers who were off, you know, in the woods trying to get themselves prepared, and they always had dogs with them to kind of spy out and look out and, and highlight any danger that might be on the horizon. Well, one night they were camping, and it was dark, of course, and they were trying to figure stuff out. Well, they, they realized there were some Union soldiers coming, and so they took some of their fried bread, and they threw it at their dogs, and they said, hush, puppies. Hush, puppies. That's how we get this word, right? That's, that's an etiology. And the book of Genesis is full of these etiologies that help us to better know how we came to be. Certain etiologies, like the serpent now floats on his belly. Prior to Genesis chapter 3, I guess the serpent had feet. I don't know. That's an etiology, the fact that women have pain in childbirth is in Genesis chapter 3. It is an etiology. Ladies, I guess before chapter 3, it was a it was a walk in the park to give birth. I don't know. But that's an etiology, right? That, that's how we know how we came to be, how the ground got cursed. And before that, it was a pleasure to till and to keep the soil. But the etiology is, because they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the difference between good and evil... The ground became cursed. These are etiologies, you see, and they help us know how we are and why we are and where we are. That's what they are. And today we're going to study an etiology that helps us understand a lot of powerful things about why there are ethnic differences and clans and tribes, etiologies about the human condition of sin, etiology about how gracious and good and merciful God is over and over and over again, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis at the very end of the flood narrative, the story of Noah and the recreation of the world, right? It runs from Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9. And most of us love what's in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 because it describes how Noah built the ark and describes how the animals got on, describes how the rain came and how they then finally got off the ark and how the world got repopulated. And and we love the story of how when Noah uh, stepped off the ark, we read this just a few short weeks ago, the very first action that he took was to worship God and to celebrate God by making an offering, right? And then the very beginning of Genesis chapter 9 points out how God has established a covenant with Noah, and the rainbow becomes that reminder, and God is remembering that I will never do this again, I'll never destroy the earth by flood again, and that will be my remembrance and your remembrance too. And then we get to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 9, and this is where the weirdness begins. And I just need to highlight before I read the text that this is a culmination of the story, and most of us tend to to run right from the blessing of Noah to to, uh, the Tower of Babel and even to Abraham, and we we run right past this particular section. And one of the reasons we run right past it is not only because it's weird, (laughs) but because most of the scholars who we read when they talk about these particular verses, man, every one of them disagrees. The scholars can't come to an agreement about who wrote this even. What the nature of the curse is, what the curse is for, and and how it is distributed, and who gets the blessing versus who gets the curse. And when you read and read and read, you see that there's all kinds of differences of opinion about what's taking shape. And so I want to read it for you so that you might begin to discover for yourself why it's so weird and what it is we can learn. So beginning in verse 18, we hear this as a culmination of the flood story. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. I love that phrase. I've never even heard that phrase. The whole earth was peopled. You see, this, this begins to get at that etiology of how the repopulation of the world happened, okay? Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, this becomes important, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Oh, well, how's that for a little bit of Scripture for you? And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Nothing like a good little family secret, right? Dad's hanging out naked in the tent. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. "'Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers.' He also said, "'Blessed by the Lord my God, be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave.'" That's a weird Scripture text, isn't it? Somebody gets drunk, they get naked, Their kids see them, other kids try to take care of them, and there's something redemptive and good about what comes out of this very weird story. So let's try to get there, shall we, right? Let's try to figure out why is a story like this that has so many elements that seem quite bad and certainly a part of the human condition, but there's something of value and purpose that can run behind this. Because again, most of us, when we read this, we just want to run away from it. Because all we want to believe and know about Noah and his family is he built an ark, he got them through the flood, and all was well. Well, ultimately, that is the story. But we, this is a part of it, and we've got to realize what is the part that this is. So let's begin with Noah himself. Noah, by many scholars' concern, is what some would call a second Adam. He is a, a second wave of a recreation of the world. That's literally his purpose, right? All the earth had become uh, destroyed. All of the earth had become destructive, and God then destroyed the earth, and Noah's purpose was to save his family and all of those animals, so that the world could be recreated again. And there's some phenomenal similarities between Adam and Eve in the creation story and Noah and his sons and their re-creation story. Take note of some of them. One is: Remember, Adam is created from the dust of the earth. That's what it, he, he literally. That's his name, and God picked him up from the dust of the earth and blew life into him. Right. Noah, on the other hand, is a man for the earth. If we step backwards into Genesis chapter 5, when Noah is named by his father Lamech, it says this about that naming. Lamech named his son Noah, and he said, May he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. Remember, the ground got cursed. That was the etiology I mentioned earlier, because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. Noah is going to redeem that. His very name will mean he will take care of the soil and he will prepare the soil. Notice another similarity between the two uh, stories. There's, There's nakedness after eating the fruit in the in the uh, adam and eve story in the garden they eat the fruit of the of the tree right in noah's story he uh, drinks of the fruit of the vine and he gets naked right there's familial discord in both stories remember Cain and Abel the sons of adam and eve man they're all at it and Cain of course kills Abel and then this story there's there's familial tension between the three boys ham shem and japheth there's a population that starts in Adam and Eve, and there's a repopulation that starts from the, after the flood, right? Then there's also the whole sense of uh, a curse. In the first story, the, the serpent is cursed because he's so uh, unique to the creation, and the serpent gets cursed. And in this story, Canaan gets cursed. And then finally, there's a covering of the nakedness in both stories as well. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, after they've eaten from the fruit and they discover they're naked and they don't like the fact that they're naked? Remember, uh, 321 says, God fashioned some clothing out of animal skin for them. And then, of course, in Noah's story, the two of the three boys, uh, Shem and Japheth, they cover their father's nakedness. There's a tremendous amount of, of connection between Adam and Eve and Noah, and it's all about the goodness of God needing to recreate the world and the earth. Now notice, there's not much said or made even of the fact that Noah gets drunk. I mean, often when we read this story, that's what we get bent out of shape over. Well, by golly, this good old guy who was righteous before God, and he's the only one God wanted to save, he gets drunk. He's nothing but a drunkard. Nothing is made of it because it's not the point of the story. It's not what the etiology is all about. And oh, by the way, it's likely, though we don't know this for a fact, but it's likely he got drunk because he'd never had grapes before. He'd never had wine before. He didn't have a clue what its impact would be. He was fresh and new to all of this. By the way, I don't know if you've ever grown grapes for winemaking or not or know about the process, but it takes roughly three years from planting until you get productive grapes to make wine. So this story is not taking shape right after they get off the ark. It must take shape sometime later. Now comes the crux of the matter, Ham, and what Ham does. The crux of the matter is that Ham's behavior is sinful. What Ham does is an atrocity to God, to humanity, and certainly to his daddy Noah and his mama. What he did was wrong, and scholars vary across the board. Uh, I can't even tell you how far uh, differences of opinion are about what the specific act of what it is that he did. But take note that he stands instead with all of us as human beings, as sinful people. Reflect back with me just a minute, back to Genesis chapter 8. They 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 the flood's over, they get off the ark, the very first thing that Noah does is, 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 is have, have a burnt offering. You remember that? We we talked about this a few short weeks ago. And when he gives that burnt offering to God and the fragrant aroma goes up to him, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, it says, Oh, God smelled the sweet fragrance. And God was pleased with what he smelled. And God said aloud, I'll never again curse the ground because of people, even though I know that they are inclined or bent towards evil, even from a young age. A part of what we begin to recognize is that even after the flood, even after God's wiped everything out, even after God is beginning to recreate the earth, guess what still remains? Our sinful nature. It is just a part of who we are. And so Ham, in the etiology, is helping us to realize this is who we are. In our humanity, we are sinful. And he has at least two very clear sins. It's in verse 22. In verse 22, Ham sees the nakedness of his father, and he tells his brothers. In other words, he kind of... He kind of brags or boasts or, you know, he kind of uh, defames his father, right? So um, the two sins are hand in hand, and the two sins are atrocious to the father and to the lineage and to God's ways. Now, notice it did not say uh, Ham saw his daddy naked. I know that's the way we typically read it, I saw my dad naked. He saw his father naked. What it says is he saw the nakedness of his father. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Daniel, what's the difference? Um, Here's the difference. You heard of an idiom or um, uh, an idiom, right, is where we say something that represents something, right? So it's raining cats and dogs. That's an idiom. I mean, cats and dogs are not literally falling from the sky, are they? When we say uh, it's raining cats and dogs, no, that's an idiom, right? I remember, uh, golly, probably about a year ago, I saw a little meme of a, of a child whose daddy said, I want you to keep an eye on this. And he was pointing to something, keep an eye on it. Well, the little boy didn't know what that meant, so he put his eye on it, right? That's an idiom. We, don't, we, don't, we didn't mean literally put your eyeball on the object. It meant look at the object, right? Keep yourself in line with That's an idiom. So is the phrase, he saw his father's nakedness. This becomes important because some scholars think that that's the sin of Ham was simply he saw his daddy naked. Well, it's, it's, it's not really a good thing to see your dad naked. And if ever you've walked into your parents' bedroom when, when you were a little child and you, you saw them naked, you remember it was not a good thing, right? And if your child walked on on you when you were, it, it's not a good thing, Right? Um, but that's not what he was doing. He, it's an idiom, and it goes something like this. Um, you know, in the book of Leviticus, that book that you, you use about weekly for your devotion time, <laughs> Leviticus speaks clearly into some things that are important, and they set up the law for the Hebrews. And, and here's one of the ways that this idiom goes, and, and I want you to listen because what it, what it says is something very important that what Ham may have done is horribly atrocious. Listen to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. Now, he didn't uncover his daddy because his daddy was already naked, right? But listen to the idiom. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Now, the idiom has very little to do with being naked. The idiom has a lot to do with an action that takes place while one is naked. I'm not going to go any further because we have kids in the room, but just know that it's not about being naked. It's about doing something when you're naked. And, And it had nothing to do with the daddy. It had everything to do with the mama. Listen to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, this is more in line with what he saw. He saw, according to the idiom, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall be subject to punishment. Do you think that somebody needs to be punished and cast out of a community simply because they've seen a family member naked? I don't think so. I think it's because of the atrocity of what the idiom represents. It's an action. It's a behavior. And Ham has done this to his father or really his mother while his daddy was drunk. And then he goes and tells everybody about it, He goes and tells his brothers as if somehow it's something of which to be proud, or somehow it's something that you need to know, or something that I want everybody to have access to, right? And so Ham's sin, whatever it is, is atrocious. And it's an, it, it's an effect on the family and on the faith and on the relationship, right? That's why a curse comes. And notice, if you will, and we'll get to this in just a sec, the curse doesn't come to Ham. The curse comes to his son, Canaan, the grandson of Noah. This is how impactful and effectual the sin is. It's going to go right through you and right past you to your lineage, to your son. Now notice, um, this is the, the nature of our sinfulness, right? Ham is representing all of us, and Ham is literally living into the sinful nature of who we are. But his brothers, Shem and Japheth, they're the good boys. They want to do the right thing. They want to correct the behavior. So they get a garment. They put it on their shoulders. They walk backwards, and they don't look backwards, and they cover their daddy. And then they, once they've covered, they walk back, and they want to correct the behavior. They want to make sure that this isn't known anymore, and they want to uh, sort of make sure that nobody else understands. They want to cover the sin. Well, then the curse comes, right? Those last few verses from Genesis chapter 9 talk about the the blessing that will come to Shem and the the blessing that will come to Japheth, but the curse comes to Canaan, the grandson of Noah, and that he's going to be a slave of Shem and he's going to be a slave of Japheth and, and, and he's not going to have a good life, right? And part of what we begin to see is that Canaan is not just a person, but he also will have a lineage as well, the Canaanites, and if you read the Old Testament, you begin to recall that the Israelites uh, wanted to overcome the Canaanites, that they wanted to move into the land of the Canaans. Remember, this was the promise for Abraham. And we begin to see that where the etymology of ethnic backgrounds and distinctions come. This is where you've got to read Genesis chapter 10 to understand. So I want you to go home today and read Genesis chapter 10, where it delineates who the children of Ham are and who the children of Seth are and who the children of Japheth are. And you begin to see that this is how the world was repopulated and this is why there were differences and this is how we live out those differences. And we begin to discover when we read Genesis chapter 10 that Shem is the the lineage of the Israelites, the Semites, and that Japheth is the... Progenitor of the Philistines, and that Ham is the progenitor of the Canaanites. And we begin to see there are differences from all these people, and they begin to go their separate ways, and they have their differences, and they have things that are at odds, and that's why Canaan gets cursed. So much so that we actually begin to see that the Israelite nation, the people of God of Abraham's lineage, they didn't so much get the promised land because they were good guys. They got the promised land because the Canaanites were cursed. Travel with me to Deuteronomy in the ninth chapter, where God is speaking to the Israelites and telling them they're going to get there, but they're only going to get there not because of their own means, but because the Canaanites were cursed. Listen to Deuteronomy 9:5. You are going in to take the land, meaning Canaanite land, the promised land, not because you're good and honest, but because these nations are evil. That is why the Lord your God will force them out of hand to you to keep his promise to his ancestors, the descendants of Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go read Genesis chapter 10. You will see the lineage. Now part of what we begin to see from this weird story is that actions have ramifications and consequences, right? Right? Poor choices and sinful behavior comes a curse or a a condemnation or a, a problem, and good behavior or faithful behavior or righteous behavior has a blessing. And we begin to see that a part of this etiology, this original understanding of who we are, is that our human condition that Ham is representing oh so well is that we are sinful and that we cause problems for ourselves and that has long-standing ramifications. And for those of us who may choose, even in the midst of our sinful nature, even in the midst of the things that we don't always get right, if we choose somehow some form of righteous behavior or doing what God desires, then there is a a blessing. And God portrays this very well. You see in in all of biblical history that we're sinful and we get it wrong a lot, Adam and Eve, Sin of pride. I, I, I know more than you, God. You told me I shouldn't have that fruit, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Cain and Abel, sin of envy, wrath, right? The human creation. Go read uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it tells us that God was so heartbroken that he had created humanity, that he knew that they were nothing but evil from the very first beginnings. It's heartbreaking to read that verse. We're sinful, go to the Tower of Babel. We want to create something for ourselves, an etiology of where babbling comes from. See, it's all in the book of Genesis. But take note of this, all of those sinful behaviors over and over again, before the flood, after the flood. Notice what God always does. Sin is pervasive, but God's grace and mercy always prevails. For Adam and Eve, there's a covering and a keeping in the garden. For Cain, there's a mark so that no one will kill him. For the humans that are so sinful that God wipes everything out, but God allows for a new creation. God allows for a new population. After the Tower of Babel, Abraham is called, and the people of faith who follow after Seth's generation will be blessed, not just for themselves, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, but for all the people of the earth. You see, it's a cadence. And this weird story from Genesis chapter 9 helps stimulate the cadence. We are sinful. We sin pervasively, ham. It's an atrocity. But God's grace and mercy is prevailing every time. And we see it over and over again. That's what our faith is. I found this fascinating. In the Exodus rendering of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it reminds us of this very thing. When God's describing the early commandments about honor God and honor the Sabbath and don't take the Lord's name in vain, he says this in verses 5 and 6, I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Canaan being cursed for his daddy's sin. Verse 6, But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I think for the generations after Moses and after David and after the prophets who believed in the Savior, in the Messiah, who set the groundwork for us to be here today that we now claim as well, that to the thousandth generation, that those of us who can claim faith in the living Christ, who can claim faith in the Lord who's been raised, who can claim faith in a God who can overcome, God will bless. So you see, it's a weird story. It really is. <laughs> it has a great message. That even in the midst of our sinfulness, even in the midst of the ways we can horribly get it wrong like ham, God still makes a way. And Jesus became that ultimate sacrifice, right? And Jesus paid the price for our sins and allows us to overcome. I pray that no matter where you are in your life, that no matter what you've done that you clearly know is not right with God, that you will place your faith and your trust in the God whose grace and mercy will always prevail and always make a way May you know that grace. May it be abundant in your life and help you in your spiritual journey because this God is a God that will always prevail when grace is real. Thanks be to God for that powerful gift. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of salvation found in and through your son Jesus. Thank you even for weird stories that when we read don't quite make sense. But ultimately, God, what we know is that even as pervasive as our sins may be, your grace and mercy will always prevail. Thank you that we can trust that that's true and that you will provide a way. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus. Amen.